You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, good morning. I'm Leanne Caldwell. I'm an anchor here at Washington Post Live and co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Today, I'm joined by Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii. Uh, we're going to talk about climate change and the legislation that was just passed in the Senate uh, to try to address it. Welcome, Senator. Thanks for having me. So before we get to that, let's start with a little bit of things that are happening around the world, including Puerto Rico, um, another devastating hurricane. Um, of course, there's the energy and climate component, but also there's just going to be a lot of need for funding. Do you expect Congress to provide funding for Puerto Rico, especially there's a funding bill that's due next week? Uh, absolutely. We're going to help uh, Puerto Rico. Um, they are in trouble again. Uh, it looks like this storm is also severe, uh, maybe less severe than the last one, but that is not to diminish the importance of the suffering. Um, we've got lots and lots of people without power, some of the same problems on their power grid uh, that occurred last time that they still have not fixed. Um, we will help. We're in disaster response right now. Uh, when disaster recovery uh, comes, um, the Congress will no doubt uh, pass an emergency spending measure for the disaster in Puerto Rico, but also very likely the, the other disasters across the continental United States. We've had flooding and wildfires uh, and excessive heat and, and, um, and storms. And every year we pass a uh, disaster supplemental, uh, which costs tens of billions of dollars. And every year the expense to deal with the increased severity and frequency of these storms goes up and up and up. It's just another example that taking no action on climate change is way more expensive than taking action. And do you think that this Puerto Rico money will be attached, included in this other disaster aid that needs to be passed by next Friday? Uh, I don't think that we're going to do disaster aid in the, in the continuing resolution. Okay. Um, I think we're going to do a, a separate disaster supplemental uh, in the next month or two. Okay, great. And then also today in the Senate, they are voting on a procedural motion on the Kigali Amendment uh, to try to get out some toxic uh, chemicals used for air conditioning, coolants. Um, how important is this? Will it make a difference and will it pass, get the two-thirds necessary in the Senate? Uh, we think so. Um, we think we have the votes for this. Uh, this is something that has a good bipartisan consensus. This is good for uh, American industry because we have the alternative uh, to the chemicals that are currently being used. But more importantly, whatever we do, uh, the rest of the world tends to follow as it relates to this kind of manufacturing. And so um, this is going to have an outsized impact on climate. But the reason uh, that we have the votes for it so far, and I knock on wood whenever I say we have the votes for something, because uh, things could change in the next three or four hours, is that this really does help American businesses. So we have this interesting coalition of environmental organizations and business organizations saying, hey, this is the right thing to do. Um, another newsy topic regarding climate that's happening in the Senate and Congress is permitting reform for energy projects around the country. Um, you were, had a big role in negotiating the side deal with Senator Joe Manchin. Um, where does that stand? Because it doesn't look like right now it has the votes in order to pass. Well, we'll see. Let me just back up a second. I really believe that um, the modern environmental movement and, and uh, I was just talking in the back room about my sort of start in politics and environmental advocacy. I was part of the Save Sandy Beach Coalition, the Save Sunset Beach Coalition, and lots of environmental activism is principled um, on stopping bad projects from happening. 
Um, but if we're going to save the planet, if we're actually going to meet our clean energy goals, we have to build things. We have to change our mentality. That doesn't mean we allow improper things to get built, but it does mean that we have to make it easier to build, especially electricity transmission. So the basic strategy for the grid is to electrify everything, right? And, and then over time to make sure that the electrons going into the grid are increasingly clean. Well, that doesn't work if it takes 15 years to do a transmission line from the American Southwest to the American Midwest. And so we're gonna have to do permitting reform. And any any time you do a change in the way that the federal government regulates, it has to apply equally to dirty and clean. And so that's the compromise that we struck. So I am for um, permitting reform. Um, whether or not we can pass it in the CR, I don't know. Um, it is very, very fluid. Uh, over the last 24 hours, the Republicans have now announced that they are against a thing that they say they are for because they want to retaliate against Joe Manchin. This is something they also did with the chips and science bill where they said, if you vote for this other thing, we're going to tank this, this thing over here, which we like, but we're going to tank it anyway. Um, that strikes me as a miscalculation like it was the first time. Um, but I don't know whether we can sort of sort all of this by the time we have to pass uh, a government uh, funding bill by the end of next week. So another thing that Senator Cornyn, a uh, Republican of Texas, told me yesterday, yes, he said that he's mad at Joe Manchin for voting for and the climate change What a weird thing. I, can we just stop there? That's <laughs> so weird. I mean, everyone's mad at everyone. We always vote uh, contrary to others' beliefs. I've, I've, I've literally never heard of voting no on something that you like in order to retaliate against someone for a different vote. This is a new tactic, and I just, I just wanted to pause right there because when McConnell announced he was going to kill the chips bill unless we killed some other bill, I tweeted, this strikes me as a miscalculation, and it was, and now it seems like this is a tactic they're relying upon, and so I didn't mean to interrupt, I guess I did, but, um, uh, but I, I just don't want to normalize this tactic where we hold different pieces of legislation hostage, even things that we like. Okay, so my question was, because I followed up with something very similar to Senator Cornyn yesterday, because many of these energy projects that would benefit from permitting reform would actually benefit Republican conservative states. And his response was, well, if we take back control of the Senate, we can have better permitting reform, more to our liking, in January. So what is your reaction to that? Well, I think if you look at the permitting reform that they proposed, it was not a balanced package. It was basically a fossil fuel wish list. And so if you believe in permitting reform, as you know, Martin Heinrich and myself and other people in the environmental movement do, you're sort of making a trade here and saying, we got to make it easier to build certain things. We don't want to undermine bedrock environmental protections, but we, it is reasonable to ask things to go a little more quickly so we can build these big projects. What they did was just provide a fossil fuel wish list. And as long as the filibuster is still in place, if we lose um, one or both chambers, we're not going to pass that. And Joe Biden's not going to sign that into law. So this strikes me as, again, a miscalculation. They should get over their hurt feelings and vote for the thing that they said they wanted all along. So are Democrats and environmentalists who have concerns about making it easier to build fossil fuel projects as part of this permitting reform in exchange for the clean energy projects as well, are they willing to get on board because of that calculation? Do you think that Democrats are going to support it? Uh, I think Democrats in the Senate, by and large, not every single one, but I think... Senator Demo Sanders said he won't. Senator Sanders is a no, but I think Democrats in the Senate, by and large, are for this because they understand the need to make it easier to build these projects. And also, to be blunt, um, 
uh, we just passed the biggest climate action that any country has ever taken. And part of that arrangement was this. And so any functioning political party has to be good to their word, and this is part of that. Speaking of this uh, biggest climate change uh, bill that you have passed, $369 billion for climate. Can you talk about specifically how Americans will feel this, what differences they will see, how it will impact them? Yeah, I think in, in the long run, the $370 billion does a lot to reduce emissions. And to me, the big policy innovation here is sort of, it sounds so straightforward as to not be an innovation, but remember, we were all in competition for, no, I've got the climate solution. No, I've got the climate solution. No, we should do agriculture. No, we should do uh, battery storage. No, we should do uh, high tech and fusion and hydrogen. And what we decided is both from a coalition building standpoint and from the standpoint of the, the, the scope of the problem and the opportunity, let's just do it all. And so this is um, really going to make a difference in emissions. Now, in the short run, Lots of people want to participate in the clean energy revolution. It's nice to say, oh, there will be this many gigawatts of solar or wind, but what does that mean for me? There are lots of direct subsidies for families that want heat pumps, that want um, uh, energy efficient appliances, that want to put solar panels on their roofs. All of these are, uh, in a certain way, oversubsidized. So people are going to start to do the arithmetic as sort of big business is doing and saying, oh my God, this bill is even better than I thought. Like the investment tax credit on the, on the business side is 30%, which it always was. But here's the kicker. If you use domestic materials, you get another 10%. If you invest in a so-called energy community, in other words, a place where they're making a transition from fossil to clean, you get another 10%. A 50% ITC is completely unheard of. And this thing stays on the books until we hit a 75% emissions reduction nationwide. This bill, as big as it is to say 369 billion, it sort of understates the impact it's about to make. Um, you called it a political miracle that it was able to pass. Um, why was it able to pass? Why was Senator Joe Manchin convinced to come on board? Well, it really was a miracle, and I sort of got, I don't know why I feel so strongly about this particular point, because it seems small uh, uh, compared to the, the, the magnitude of the, of the crisis here, but I just don't want ever, uh, I don't want to ever see the history written like this thing was inevitable. This was not supposed to happen. This was structurally uh, very, very unlikely. Um, but I think there's probably three or four dozen people uh, across the country, and in particular in this town, who can credibly claim, hey, I'm the one that saved this thing, because this thing had that many, uh, not just near-death experiences, but actual deaths and res resurrections. And so part of it was just persistence because, uh, you know, the planet's at stake. You don't sort of go, you know, this isn't, I don't want to name another issue to diminish the importance of that other issue, but as much as any other issue may seem urgent, you can always say, look, we'll come back next year. There is no let's come back next year on a planet that is on fire. And so nobody ever gave up. And credit to Chuck Schumer, who never gave up, who was you know, always good on climate, but not as passionate as he is now. Um, and I think part of that is because of his grandson um, and his passion about um, leaving the next generation in better shape uh, um, uh, uh, than, than his generation. And, and credit to Joe Biden for allowing the negotiations to continue quietly and staying engaged and not walking away from the table. And then in the, and in the end, I mean, I can't get into Joe Manchin's mind, mm -hmm. but one of the things, one of the exchanges that we had, we had some uh, frisky uh, text exchanges uh, throughout the process. Well, um, uh, what was one? Well, 
I'll sanitize it. But uh, but uh, we, uh, uh, you know, when one of the deaths of, of of the climate bill, I forgot which one it was actually, and I texted him. I said, you know, the sad thing is there was so much in it that was negotiated by the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Uh, uh, on which he's the chairman. And so there was a lot of stuff in that bill that he liked all along. And if you listen to him carefully, he talks about the need to decarbonize, right? But he just wants to make sure that we have reliable electricity um, and fuel for everybody. And then we make a transition in a way that works for people. And so when he started to talk like that, I ran the Hawaii Clean Energy Initiative in the state of Hawaii. And as much as I'm a you know, left progressive climate hawk, when you become in charge of an electricity system, right, a transmission and dis distribution system, you start to sound a little bit more like Joe Manchin because you say, I can't have a brownout or a blackout in Waikiki. We have um, the joint basis Pearl Harbor Hickam that's on the commercial grid. And suddenly you, you start to sound like a pragmatist. And we found common ground. And I think that um, Chuck Schumer's staff and others just kind of stayed engaged and stayed engaged. And finally, it came down to, Joe Manchin would rather move the country forward with energy security than not. The Washington Post wrote a story about um, the three climateers. Um, and you, um, Senator Whitehouse, and Senator Heinrich. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the work over the years of on this issue and how perhaps there might have been a generation, is there a generational divide in the Senate on this issue and the work that you did to ensure that it was front and center for Democrats for years? Well, I don't know if it's a divide. I guess the way I would look at it is Barbara Boxer, right, who's now retired, um, was, a, was an absolute climate hawk, um, but she wanted reinforcement. So when several of us came to the Senate, she welcomed us in. And so it wasn't so much a divide as great, we have, we're not alone anymore, because it used to be Barbara and a couple of other people. And now the climate sort of cohort, you could probably say is 20 to 30 members of our 50-person caucus. Um, but you know, Sheldon Whitehouse and Martin Heinrich and I are a nice balance, because Sheldon kind of looks at the legal and structural impediments to change and doesn't like sort of losing the same battle over and over again. Martin is an engineer uh, by training and sort of understands the technical piece of the grid, of fuel security, of the kind of stuff at the US Department of Energy that has to happen, and the kind of making it work piece. And then I'm the synthesizer, right? I'm the person who kind of says, let's make sure that this is not a loser for the caucus. Let's make sure that this is not something that splits our caucus. But you know, it was like about eight years ago, we kind of all huddled and said, we don't like losing anymore. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, we weren't the only ones, but we started to meet weekly and just stay at it because we understood that in politics, you don't know whether your bill is going to pass next week or next decade, but you got to be ready for the moment. And we were. There were a lot of losses from then until now, though. Yes. Yes, it was. Uh, I mean, shoulder to the wheel. Right. And a part, part of it was that I felt the disappointment that lots of people felt. But I also felt a special obligation to keep my chin up. Right. Because if I'm uh, uh, walking around despondent, then that's really going to impact the way people feel all across the country. But I, I feel like the, this is an issue um, that supersedes all other issues. I was the lieutenant governor of the state of Hawaii. I, was, I still am happy, but I was very happy doing that work. And when I had an opportunity to come to the Senate, it was because of climate. It's because we need federal action and because the United States has to remain the indispensable nation in all things, but in particular in a thing that kind of knows no borders and needs international leadership. And so 
Um, we made a lot of progress. I, I do want to say this bill's great. It gets us 80% um, of the way towards our, our clean energy goals, but that's only 80% of the way to a 50% reduction. And so this is a big down payment. It's the biggest thing we've ever done by far. Um, but the other way to look at it is that we're going to have to do two or three or four more of these over a generation. Um, this is a generational fight, and we're still in it. So what else can the Senate do? What else needs to be done specifically? Kigali will be a very good start. Um, and I, I am very focused on implementation um, because I've seen you can set big clean energy goals and you can get stopped by NIMBYs. You can get stopped by... Um, uh, bureaucracies, not even intentionally speaking, just processes that take a long time. But there are massively generous um, tax credits now for manufacturing, uh, for transmission distribution, uh, for battery storage, for research. All of this can happen, but you have to now find a project, site a project, finance a project, permit a project, and then build a project. And so execution is one sort of line of effort. And the other piece is that um, for the first time since uh, President Obama was, was, was president, um, we are in a position to step back onto that global stage um, with Secretary Blinken and, and, um, and uh, former Secretary Kerry and President Biden and say, okay, what's next? And um, the EU has already displayed incredible leadership, um, but we have more work to do in the global south to make sure that as we move forward with clean energy, we do so with justice in mind. Um, but there's an opportunity to leverage what the United States has done to create a global movement for clean energy, and we're already seeing it happen. What about China? China's gonna be a hard one. Um, the, you know, the, we did well um, with President Obama and his bilaterals, and that was sort of, we were able to kind of bifurcate um, or separate our disagreements from climate. Climate was its own track. And I'm hoping we can get back to that, where we can disagree about human rights, we can disagree about the Western Pacific and, and Taiwan and Hong Kong and, and lots of other economic challenges. But climate should be its, its own track because climate is not a, a, a win-lose thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's either a win-win or a lose-lose. Um, and so we're going to have to, and I know that that's what Secretary Kerry has in mind, is to sort of allow uh, the United States and China to have vigorous disagreements in other areas, but to work together on climate. Uh, an audience or viewer question from George Kralovic from Virginia asks, now that we have the Inflation Reduction Act, which is actually the climate change bill named the Inflation Reduction Act, um, do we still need a price on carbon? Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I remain uh, in favor of a price on carbon, but I'm also, look, I was going around saying you can't just advocate for your pet bill, right? And then I have to sort of stay true to that. I continue to think that a price on carbon is the most elegant, most pro-business, most predictable way to do this. But also, my other title is Chief Deputy Whip, so I have to be able to count, and we don't have the votes for that. And so um, we had to pivot very quickly to something that we did have the vote, votes for, which was essentially all carrots and very, very few sticks. Is it ideal? Is it the thing that I would have written if I were in charge of everything? No. Um, do I think we should eventually do a price on carbon? I do, um, but I don't think the current political environment puts us in a position to do that in the next you know, six to 12 months. But again, you just sort of never know when things could shift. Uh, and you mentioned the carrots versus sticks. So the carrots are tax incentives and not forcing mandates on, on actions and activity. Um, why did that transition happen and when did that happen? When did Democrats realize that the stick is not gonna work? 
Well, I think it's two things. First, it's the politics of it. Sticks are harder to do. Um, and it's not clear that we would have ever gotten Joe Manchin's vote if it were all sort of on the regulatory and punitive side. So that's number one. The other thing is just it's an idiosyncrasy of passing something through reconciliation. You can't really pass new regs mm -hmm. in a reconciliation vehicle. It can only be sort of tax policy uh, or budget-related policy. So we sort of backed into something that ended up working politically because of the idiosyncrasies of the weird process we used. Um, on implementation, what is the timeline for some of this? Um, of course, there's the permitting reform requirement, but um, for these new projects, are we 10 years away? No, uh, we, we can't be 10 years away. Um, but I mean, in the last month, uh, so many new investments have been announced and more coming. And so this is, this is so generous and so real, and by the way, so permanent, right? Because when people are making investments and they say, well, the ITC you know, expires in two years, what happens after that, right? What happens if we can't you know, break ground by the time the ITC expires? None of that um, is a consideration anymore. These, this law is permanent. Most of the ITC piece is permanent until we achieve a 75% reduction in emissions. So that predictability is sending a giant signal to the private sector. So it's already happening. Our goal is um, you know, for between 40 and 45% reduction in emissions by 2030. And so that means projects need to be contemplated, financed, and built over the next three to five years. Um, also on permitting reform, I was talking to Senator Booker yesterday who made an argument that I have heard over and over again that this actually hurts um, you know, lower income communities who are negatively impacted by energy projects. They bear the brunt of these. What is your reaction to that? Well, Corey's my friend, and he really walks the walk uh, as it relates to environmental justice. And to be um, clear, he still supports this, but he says that sucks for them. Yeah, it, I, I have those Quotes, reservations. Not my words, his. <laughs> um, either way, um, uh, uh, you know, I, ha I think those reservations are fair. And I think it's important to point out that the Inflation Reduction Act has $60 billion for environmental justice. And so in the big picture, again, um, Environmental justice was not on the radar for, for the federal legislature. I'm not saying it wasn't an issue, but it wasn't on the radar for the federal legislature as recently as three years ago. And now when we pass energy policy, we do environmental justice. And that from a precedent setting standpoint is really key. Um, but I think we're gonna have to be cautious because the thing that the uh, so-called EJ community, the environmental justice community talks to me about is, hey, carbon emissions are important and climate change is important, but sometimes we're getting directly poisoned, right? And so there is a scenario if we're not careful and if we're not mindful and if we don't include people where we could do the emissions reductions on the carbon side and still harm these frontline and fence line communities and still ignore and harm these frontline and fence line communities. So that's something that I think we all have to wrap our mind around and be increasingly sensitive to. But I am super proud that we invested $60 billion in EJ communities. Um, some of the energy projects of the future will actually, you know, mining for car batteries, et cetera. You are head of the Indian Affairs Committee. So a lot of this is on native land. Um, and there, how do you move forward um, with some of these communities who don't want to harm their people or their land for perhaps, of course, they want a better world, but for um, these precious minerals? Well, I think that the, you know, the principle that I use as the chairman of the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs is 
nothing about me without me. Um, and that's a Barbara Mikulski line, but I think it's really uh, an important way to look at all politics, but in particular when it comes to Native communities. Too often the federal government makes decisions on behalf of Native communities and not allowing them to, to, to um, drive their own destiny. What we did on the Indian Affairs side in the Inflation Reduction Act is provide $20 billion worth of tribal loan authority for clean energy projects. And I've spoken to tribal leaders who are absolutely thrilled because they think they can make tons of money for their tribal members um, doing wind and solar. And so it's a double-edged sword because as we move forward, we're going to have to do new industrial processes and, like you say, new mining and new siting and new construction. And those are all things that the environmental community sort of traditionally is allergic to. But if we're going to save the planet, we have to actually imagine that we're building things that save the planet. You can't, at this point, just leave things alone. We're going to have to build these big planet-saving projects, and I'm excited about the ability to do it uh, together. I have 15 seconds left. Is climate a good issue in these midterm elections? Oh, yeah. Now, I'm first of all, I predict wrong all the time, except when it comes to Hawaii. But I will say that um, Joe Biden's popularity was, was kind of shockingly low with young people, uh, considering his politics. And we, pl we passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, that's not the only thing that happened, but we passed the Inflation Reduction Act, and he is now doing much, much better among young people. Um, people are fired up about this bill. Senator Schatz, we are out of time. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's great fun. And, and my colleague, Juliet Epperin, will be out momentarily with the next guest. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Juliet Alperin, Deputy Climate and Environment Editor here at the Washington Post. And today, I'm joined by Ryan Gellert, CEO of Patagonia, a brand some of you might be wearing right now or certainly familiar with, to discuss the role of private companies in addressing climate change. Ryan, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Last week, Patagonia founder Yvonne Chouinard announced that he had transferred he and his family's ownership, valued at roughly $3 billion, to a set of trusts and nonprofit groups in order to preserve the company's independence. And, uh, and ensure that all, of, and that all of its profits, about 100 million a year, are used to combat climate change and address other uh, issues, including protecting land across the globe. What were those initial conversations like between you and Yvonne? Yeah, it was, um, well, first of all, let me just say, last week was, it was really, it was humbling and it was really inspiring. I mean, to have been with the Chouinard family for the last couple of years in close quarters, and it, you know, there's a small group of us really trying to understand how we solved this problem that they had presented, and honestly, that they had wrestled with for decades. You know, um, people that know Yvonne or has read his story, familiar with his story, know that one of his mentors was a person named Doug Tompkins, and Doug, along with his first wife, founded Esprit. And then Doug sold a spree and took the money that he made from that. And he became, with his second wife, Chris Tompkins, the largest conservationist in the history of private conservation. So they bought land in Chile and Argentina and created these large-scale national parks. And so Doug had always been in Yvonne's ear about, you should do the same thing. And I think for decades, Yvonne had really wrestled with that. How do I have the biggest impact? You know, he, he describes himself as a reluctant businessman because he has always been a reluctant businessman. And so fast forward to a couple of years ago, Yvonne said, look, 
I'm not getting any younger. Now is the time that we solve this problem. And you know, for any of us that are familiar with the the, the normal ways that that founders exit businesses, it felt like I mean, it was just the most demotivating thing I ever heard. Because first time he said it, I was like, all right, all right, but maybe I can sidestep this because um, it's been a live conversation for a long time. But it became increasingly clear that he was really committed to doing this. And you know, one of the times that I think the time it became most clear, I was over at his house, and it was just he and I sitting on the back porch. And he said, "I swear to God, if you don't if you don't start moving on this, I'm going to go get the Forbes billionaire list, and I'm going to start just cold calling people." And so that was the point where I think it was it was clear to all of us that he wasn't going to move off of this. And so we explored taking the company public, which, you know, the, the quote of $3 billion in valuation, I think had we taken it public, it probably would have been $6-plus billion. Um, and we looked at selling minority interests or even selling the whole company. And I think what that did, I never was interested in those outcomes, and I think many of us weren't, but we had to solve the problem that Yvonne and the family had put in front of us. And when we got deeper into the conversations, what became clear was there were two things of primary interest to them. One is protect the ongoing integrity of Patagonia, the business, and the other is create more money right now to cash flow the environment. And so it was two years of trying to figure out if we could put together a new structure because we couldn't figure out how to do those two things under the existing models. And could you talk a little about yeah, why you landed where you did? And also, obviously, there's been different reporting on the tax implications uh-huh. and what benefits or, or costs there were to the family to do this. So if you yeah. could talk a little about that. Um, so how we came to this, um, you know, again, we exhausted the options, the, the, the well-worn paths for, for founders to exit. And so we started looking at you know different structures and looked at so we took inspiration from some other companies that were very purpose led Ben and Jerry's and Newman's Own and there were flaws in each of those and so we ended up putting together you know taking existing tools and cobbling them together so in essence and it's a complex story or it's a complex structure but it's a simple narrative the simple narrative is this there's a purpose trust trust generally benefit a person a purpose trust benefits a purpose. So the purpose trust owns 100% of the voting shares of Patagonia now. And that, in, that it exists to ensure that people like myself, the leadership team, run the business using the philosophy that's, that's so important to the founders. And then there's the Holdfast Collective, and that receives all of the profits from the business, and its purpose is cash flowing the environment. So that's the structure that we landed on. Mm-hmm. On the tax piece, yeah, it's been widely reported on. And, um, you know, a few things. Number one, we have always paid our taxes. That's, you know, that's public record that can be pulled, and that's not just in America, but that's around the world. We don't employ complex business structures to avoid paying taxes, so we have never structured the business that way. It's not only that we pay our taxes, we have always believed in paying our taxes. When Trump pushed through a corporate tax reduction, we actually took the benefit of that $10 million and gave it to small grassroots organizations working on the front lines of the climate crisis. So that's sort of context of how we think about this. Mm -hmm. In this structure, for the nearly two years that we had meetings every single week with the family, never once did I have a conversation with them about, by the way, optimize this for taxes. So it was never part of the conversation. And the final thing I would say is state taxes Mm -hmm. are intended it's a tax paid when you take something of value and hand it from one generation to the other. That didn't happen here. 
and capital gains taxes are a tax that you pay when you take something. It, it escalates in value. You sell it and you take the money off the table. That didn't happen here. So it's, you know, it's the equivalent of me not paying taxes on my house yesterday because I didn't sell my house yesterday. And so I don't think we, we have dodged anything. Got it. And you, you briefly mentioned this, but when you talked about the purpose trust, but what, could, you, could you walk us through what this means for you as CEO going forward and running the company? Obviously, you have to adhere to these ideals, but is there anything else you would say about how running the company is different now than it was? No, uh, I, I would know, say so. that it's exactly the same as it was before. And I think if anything's different, I see it as an asset because it takes away this question of what happens at some point down the road. And so I, I would hope that not just for myself, for the leadership team, for every employee at Patagonia, we now know not just what our structure is today, but what our structure will be for the future. But to me, it's the most liberating thing in the world to know that our values are codified, that we have put together a leadership team, we have an organization and a culture of people that are focused on these things, and we have a board of directors that are equally committed to them. So I, I feel like it just brings clarity that we've been looking for. Got it. And in terms of the Hold Fast Collective and some of the other you know, activities that are going to now be funded, as you said, with more money, uh, could you talk a little about you know, how it's going to be balanced between, say, grassroots initiatives aimed at you know, conservation, things including, say, regenerative agriculture or something like that, and obviously politics, because clearly this is something that Patagonia has gotten involved in. It's a 501c4, making that possible. And you know, we're at this moment where we have, obviously, political players on both sides yeah. of the aisle doing this, this kind of move. And, yeah. and could you spell out how, how you're going to engage in this? Yeah, so I would say first, again, stepping back for context, yeah. you know, we spent over this nearly 24-month period, it took kind of everything we had, including all the time we had to figure out how to pull this off. Mm -hmm. And we this transaction actually completely about a month ago and so we had almost no capacity to think about anything else it was a really small team because we wanted we needed to keep this thing tight until it was done and then once it was done about a month ago we switched gears and that really small team became slightly less small but not not a whole lot more and we focused on putting together a rollout plan for our employees and so you know it was incredibly important for us to roll this out for our employees and with our employees in a way that they would understand the intentionality behind this. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of all the time and energy that we had up till then. And we met, so we did that on Wednesday. The news became public on Wednesday. Thursday morning, the board got together and we said, all right, we now need to move to the third piece of this, which is how are we gonna deploy these funds? Mm -hmm. And so it's a long-winded way of saying, you know, to some extent, we haven't answered those questions. Mm -hmm. I think what people can expect from us is we'll be focusing on root cause issues, not symptoms. Mm -hmm. We'll be focusing directionally on the same types of things over nature-based solutions to the climate crisis and being as inclusive as we know how to be in with the communities that rely on these areas and those that have been exposed to you know, bear disproportionate amount of weight for the climate and ecological crisis. Those are the general directions. I think regenerative organic agriculture, and I always work in the word organic because so often now people are talking about regenerative regenerative agriculture, which is just, I think, lacking in definition and mm -hmm. specificity. So regenerative organic agriculture. Um, as far as the politics piece, we were very intentional about setting up a 501c4 for the reasons you articulated. I don't know what that'll mean. I would tell you what I don't think it should be is an arms race, both sides, and continuing to try to outspend each other. I, I don't see how that benefits any of us. 
Um, but I think the thing that we think about all the time, in addition to really focusing on root cause issues, is where can we be most additive? And I think you know we've got a little bit of uh, time in front of us right now to figure out and fine tune what we think that'll be. And what do you think it means? You know, it's so interesting that we obviously just had Senator Schatz talk about, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act. There mm-hmm. is a considerable amount of money that the federal government and all of us as taxpayers will be putting towards addressing climate change as a result of that legislation. But in many ways, you really see, you know, a, a far greater amount of money coming from, you know, private actors, whether it's in the political realm, whether it's by, with philanthropy. You know, what do you think are the implications of having so many private actors who don't have that same accountability to the public, you know, engaging in this issue? I think when it comes to the climate and ecological crisis, we don't have a choice. I mean, the thing that I keep going back to is, you know, governments were, the whole concept of government is to solve these kinds of big, complex problems and um, and also, you know, focus energy and resources towards big opportunities. I think people individually say, well, I didn't create this problem. What can I do? I'm one person. I think businesses have always very conveniently hit behind this uh, this Friedman approach to, you know, the, the rule of business is to maximize shareholder wealth. That's a wonderfully entertaining academic idea, but it is it is created the problems that we have today. And if we don't shift away from that, we know exactly what tomorrow's gonna look like. So I think at an individual level, we not only need to make decisions in our lives, minimize our footprint where we can, but we also need to, you know, really embrace our role as part of civil society. Turn out to vote, and by the way, today's National Voter Registration Day, so um, that's that's worth mentioning as well. But really, show up in all the ways we can individually. Governments need to do what governments need to do, which is step up and solve the biggest problems that we face. And I don't think there's any bigger than this. But businesses have to step into this space. So, you know, I think we're just past the luxury of being able to debate what the purpose of business is. Okay. And along those lines, uh, in a post published on LinkedIn, you criticized corporate members mm-hmm. of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Business Roundtable, which obviously includes some of the biggest corporations in the world, for their opposition to the Inflation Reduction Act and their general hypocrisy on these issues. Do you think that public shaming will compel some of these companies to act on this issue, and how? Well, I I think people like me posting things like that on LinkedIn isn't going to change anything, let's be clear. Um, I do think employees and customers have the power to change things. You know, I talked a minute ago about, you know, what are we best at? What What are we uniquely qualified to impact? I think one of the things that we have proven reasonably good at, we're good storytellers. Mm-hmm. And we have a community of people, whether they're customers of, of Patagonia or they just sort of follow what we're up to. But I think really respond to the stories that we tell. And I think creating a world, and I do think the news last week, I don't think other companies are going to follow us immediately okay. and give their companies away. But you know what it does is it expands the conversation about what's possible, which hopefully shifts the responsibility within boardrooms a little bit more in that direction. So LinkedIn posts like that, you know, I think it's making a statement and informing people about the, um, you know, the, I mean, it came from, if I want to be really honest, and I won't name names here, but it came from a conversation with one of the biggest companies in America and their CEO and saying, hey, look, you all are undermining this. And you are describing yourself to your customers and to your employees as a regenerative company. And you are in a leadership role with one of the organizations that is trying to torpedo this legislation. I can't square that. Mm-hmm. And all I ask you to do is say the same thing to your lobbyists that you're saying to your employees and to your customers. And if you do that, then you know people can vote with their dollars. See, I would like you to name names. And so my next question would be, can you identify any hypocritical companies right now in the space, in part to say, 
you know, make it clear for, uh, you know, consumers and those voters. I, I would say this, um, and I'm not trying to sidestep yeah. that as much as I actually think, I think it's important that people educate themselves on this and not just look at sound bites. Look at the, look at the membership of the Business Roundtable, look at the membership in the American Chamber of Commerce, and look for any, and you will find very few, public statements from those members supporting the Inflation Reduction Act or supporting prior to that Build Back Better. Um, look for it. You're going to find very few. Look at the leadership within those organizations, particularly the Business Roundtable, mm -hmm. and look at whether or not, look at whether they've gone on record in support of these things. Also, I would encourage you to check the dates they might have gone on record. You know, <laughs> the week before is a little different than when the momentum is being built. Got it. And are there, are there examples you can point to where you feel like consumer action, because this comes up a lot with our, you know, with our audience too, of, of you know, this balance between the need for actual you know, government rules and, and what people can do, where you've seen a, a really significant shift in how people place their dollars and what that means in terms of environmental outcomes? You know, I think the two things that People, I think sometimes, I mean, voting is number one, period. And so I think it's one thing to vote. It's another thing to educate yourself and really be an informed voter. And it's a third thing to help other people vote. And so one of the things that we're pushing on quite a bit, and we actually just found out last night that in the short time that we've posted this, this um, information on our website about how people can participate in the upcoming midterms, we've, we've had 3,000 plus people register to be poll workers from our community, which that's another way that I think people don't think about a lot to engage in, in the process. So I think participating, getting yourself up to speed, helping other people do it is critical. I think the other thing that people often overlook is individual employees, mm -hmm. is how much influence they can have on the companies that they work for. And I think one of the great trends in the last couple of years has been employees putting pressure on their employers on the topics most important to them. In my opinion, few, if any, more important than climate. Got it. Um, now, while Patagonia has taken many steps to curb its environmental impact, it turns a profit by getting people to buy what uh, I believe you've said in your own words are, we're making stuff, uh, we're not making stuff that people need yep. to survive. So how do you address this inherent contradiction in being a consumer-oriented company and clearly one of the biggest issues we especially face in the industrialized and wealthy world. Yeah, well, I think, I think the first way we do it is acknowledging our place in the world with no arrogance. And, you know, I think just stepping right into that, we, I think that quote, because I've, I've used it often, is we make product that people may want, but they don't need it to survive. Uh, and, and I think that that's a really important thing for us to understand. I think it's really important that we never try to convince anybody otherwise. You know, one of the questions I was answering from some uh, journalist in the UK over the week, it was on Friday, of last week. So again, the news of us giving the company away and restructuring it was done on Wednesday. So it was 48 hours later. He said, so what, what have salesmen like since? And I said, you know, I'll be honest with you, I don't know. I haven't asked, um, but I should ask. Um, did, you, it, did you find out I, the answer? I did ask. And the answer was on our e-com, on our, on our website, was traffic had gone up 300 plus percent, meaning people were coming. And we had done a homepage takeover with a letter from Yvonne Chouinard about what he had done and why he had done it. And, and the revenue on the website was up, you know, maybe 30% for a couple of days. So, I mean, there was a little bit of, a, of, a, of an impact, but not a meaningful one. So your question, though, to, to try to answer it directly, it's one that we wrestle with all the time, is we've got to be really honest with ourselves about the business that we're in and the impact of that business. We have to constantly wrestle with how we minimize the footprint of our business. And then at the heart of that tension that you describe 
is the reason that we started taxing ourselves what we called an earth tax in the mid 80s. It was one, originally it was 1% of sales or 10% of profits, whatever was greater. And then we codified it and then we co-founded an independent organization called 1% for the Planet 20 years ago. And we've given 1% of revenue every year to small grassroots organizations working on the front lines of the climate and ecological crisis. And that's to sort of tax ourselves because we know we can't do enough good within the business to offset the impact that we have. But this is something that we've got to wrestle with every day. Right. And now, of course, some companies may benefit by getting more political. And I'm wondering to what extent, when you talk about your um, conversations with like-minded CEOs mm-hmm. or, or ones that are slightly have slightly different views, um, to what extent is there a possibility for a broader coalition? And how would you see that developing? I think what we have found is that building coalitions around issues mm-hmm. has become easier and, and in many ways more productive. I mean, one of the ones that I'll point to, I think it's the best example so far that we have is time to vote. So we co-founded with Levi's and PayPal, an organization of businesses that are committed to helping their employees get out and vote. And part of the commitment is shutting down their business on election day, which is something we've done for a long time to ensure that their employees have access to getting out and voting. And that's a that's a pretty nonpartisan topic, and it's a nonpartisan organization. I believe in the last election cycle, we had over 2,000 businesses that had committed to that. So that's an example where you kind of have a single issue where a lot of businesses can come together. I don't think in general we make great partners broadly um, for other businesses because this is what we do. This is what we're focused on. And I think people often say, well, can we just bring it down? No, this is what we do. And so if we have to go it alone at times, then so be it. But we're not doing that intentionally to, to you know, we're not wanting to go alone, mm-hmm. but we sort of move at the pace we move and will align with others on issues where the opportunity is there. Right. And obviously, so you've identified clearly voting is something which, you know, there is, again, some precedent of, of for example, bipartisan coalitions and, and kind of apolitical coalitions on that. Um, obviously, Patagonia is engaged in other issues, including abortion. Are, are, there, are there any, are there issues beyond, say, something like voting where you feel like there's the most possibility for broader action? And are there ones where you feel like it's incredibly unlikely that that corporations would become more political about. I think that um, I think that environmental issues are ones that have got to unite us all. I mean, I see more overlay there with, with voting than I do perhaps on the others. I mean, on reproductive rights and abortion, that's an issue incredibly important to our employees. So it's important to us, period. And so that's an issue that that's the lens that we bring to it. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the challenges of, of running a business, being part of a business like Patagonia is, having authenticity and credibility and a reason for engaging on all of the issues that we engage on. I think it's very easy. You get a lot of microphones put in front of your face. It's very easy to have an opinion on everything. I don't think that that's good for us. I don't think that's good for our community. I don't think that that's helpful for the underlying issues. And so I think a certain amount of discipline is really important from us. And I think finding opportunities where the things that we're focused on overlay with the things that are important to other businesses. That's where that's that's where sometimes we form these coalitions. And for publicly traded companies that have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, to what extent do you think that they could ever make decisions that aren't directly related to their bottom line? You know, I think that that's, I, I, I'm, I've got mixed mind on this. Um, on the one hand, I do fully acknowledge our life is a whole lot easier with the owners that we have, both being privately owned and up till 
um, you know, about a month ago, and now having the structure that we have, it just simplifies everything for us. So I do, you know, I'd be kind of disingenuous not to acknowledge that. I think the flip side is, you know, the, the leaders of publicly traded companies use that as an incredibly convenient excuse not to do the right thing. And so I find that also um, pretty disingenuous. And so I think this notion of, you know, hey, look, our number one responsibility is this, everything else is outside of that, I think is, that's really convenient. You know, look, I can get kind of my soapbox on this. I think there's few things that heads of businesses love being called more than a leader. They usually love applying it to themselves if somebody else doesn't first. And, you know, leadership's something that happens happens when you're sitting alone at night trying to wrestle through really big decisions. And these are big, complex decisions. They also happen to sit at the heart of an existential threat to humanity. And everything that we hold dear, one that we, uh, crises that we have created ourselves. And so if you can't figure out how to make that part of your responsibility, I think somebody ought to strip the leader uh, lapel off your, off your jacket. Okay, last question. Almost a year ago, in response to a question asking if you had faith that governments and big businesses would be able to stop runaway climate change, mm -hmm. you responded, no, I don't. In light of what we've seen recently, whether it's in terms of legislation in Washington and this move, to what extent would you modify that answer? Or I wouldn't modify it at all. I mean, because it was an honest answer. And I've got two young kids, so I think about this all the time. I think the world they're inheriting is going to be vastly different than the one I grew up in. And I, I just, that sobers the hell out of me to acknowledge, but I think it's true. So if you want an honest answer, that's my honest answer, and I'll stand by it. Now, I think a lot of people take that as a reason to just be paralyzed and feel like you can't move forward and contribute. I, I feel like we've lost the right to be, you know, to be cynical about this. I think we have to show up every day and do everything we can. And I would love nothing more than to be proven wrong. There you go. Well, Ryan, we're just about out of time. I want to thank you for joining us here at the Washington Post. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. And And my colleague, Francis Dead Sellers, will be out here shortly with the next guest after this video. So please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello. For a growing number of companies, sustainability is a business decision that transcends ESG, public relations, or even a corporate ethos. Building impact and social value is now a pillar of many companies' investment and innovation strategy. And to discuss the importance of a sustainable business strategy and investment across the clean energy landscape, I'm joined by Richard Chin. He's the CEO of SK Growth Companies. Richard, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, it's an honor to be here. Uh, so pleasure. we don't see a lot of ads for SK products on television. You're a B2B uh, business, but I, and I don't think people really know how much your investments are powering you know, our business and personal lives. Talk to us a little bit about your footprint here in the United States and the vision of where you want to go. Great, thank you. Um, first of all, as my colleague and head of the DC office shared with you, we are the second largest conglomerate uh, based in Korea. We employ over 110,000 employees worldwide and uh, in uh, lots of different industries and operating companies and clean energy, uh, semiconductors, and life sciences. In the United States specifically, um, we're across 26 states, over 4,000 employees, and currently have uh, $13 billion in investments and assets. 
by 2025, that increases to 50 billion in investment in assets and over 20,000 highly skilled workers. So we're excited about our growth in all of the sectors that we're investing in in the US. As Elise, you mentioned, um, we don't appear in a lot of advertising, primarily because we're B2B. But uh, we're in industries like semiconductors where we serve customers like Apple, Dell. So if you use a cell phone, a smart TV, any device that um, processes information, we make those devices smarter uh, with our semiconductor solutions. We also have uh, a huge um, uh, gigafactory in Commerce, Georgia, producing electric vehicle batteries. And we're the serving- The biggest in the United States, right? Well, right now, absolutely it is. And it's gonna get larger as, and by 2025 as we continue to invest in two plants. One is live right now. We'll be serving customers like Ford, their F-150 Lightning uh, program will be powered by our electric vehicle batteries, as well as Volkswagen's ID4 uh, product. Um, as I mentioned, the first plant is live. Second plant will be live uh, by couple, in a couple of years, and we'll be producing over 300,000 electric vehicle batteries uh, a year. And then in addition to that, we've announced a joint venture with Ford, where we will be uh, building in Tennessee and Kentucky another several uh, mega plants uh, to produce about a million batteries per year when that, uh, that plant is up and live. So by 2025, we're pretty confident we're gonna be the largest uh, battery maker for electric vehicles. Yeah, and all these uh, vehicle companies, automotive companies are coming out with electronic vehicles, so that's obviously going to increase. Now you're investing heavily in helping scale green business and technology and research and development for eco-friendly solutions. What's driving that strategy? Uh, that's a great question. The uh, underlying um, principle is that uh, businesses, SK, we believe that uh, businesses must uh, produce not just economic value, but social value. And this is a philosophy that our chairman, Tony Che, uh, created, uh, established uh, nearly a decade ago, where he called it a double bottom line approach uh, in terms of philosophy as well as management system. And it measures our operating company's uh, economic value creation, but also social value creation. And much of the social value creation measurements are around environment and sustainability. So we not only talk the talk, before ESG was a uh, acronym that we created in the industries, uh, but we also walk the walk of doing the things necessary to create sustainability in everything that we do in our business for positive social impact. So how does that translate into your business decisions and strategies? Like, is it, talk about, it's it the inception of what you do? Uh, absolutely, we, you know, as we look at our businesses today and much of our businesses in post-war Korea started with hydrocarbon-based energy businesses or other very um, uh, traditional uh, conglomerate businesses, we want to transform ourselves uh, as, a, as a conglomerate to become a much more eco-friendly conglomerate. So therefore, Every investment decision we make, every key capital uh, investment decisions we make, we ask along the lines of both financial returns, but also 
social impact returns. And so that's how we think about and act on our investments. Well, certainly you did that all that years ago, a kind of pioneer in the field, but you're not just thinking in clean energy, but you've put a premium on sustainable business practices themselves. And I think that's a growing field for a lot of companies. Tell us about um, your strategy for sustainable business practices. Sure. Just as uh, you know, we think both about financial and social impact uh, at upfront when we make capital investment decisions and new business investment decisions, we really look at ourselves and say, what are the things that we're doing that we can do better in terms of uh, sustainability and, and having a less negative uh, footprint uh, to the environment? So uh, simple examples uh, in today's business that we run in semiconductors, uh, manufacturing of semiconductors is a very uh, water intensive uh, process. And so we, you, we are using artificial intelligence solutions to measure and see how we, how we use water and how, where we can save water uh, in our manufacturing process. And so therefore, uh, by 20, 2030, we're anticipating that through these improvements, continuous improvements in, uh, in uh, our processes, that we would reduce uh, water usage, for example, by 300%. And, and so we, every day we, uh, uh, we look at the way we do business and try to impact um, more positively uh, to the environment. And another uh, sort of good example would be um, even in our chemicals and plastics related businesses, we realized several years ago that the, the, the labels that go around the plastic bottles are not recyclable. So therefore our chemists, our scientists came up with a echo label that can be recycled. They don't have to get separated from the plastic bottles uh, to make the, the process cumbersome for recycling. And so every little bit helps is our motto and our thinking, and that's how we uh, practice every day um, those sort of uh, important steps in, in turning our business around. Now, you recently did a survey of business leaders that found sustainability isn't, just like for you, isn't PR anymore, but it's critical to the overall success of a business. What do you say to companies that are just starting now to think about this kind of business strategy for sustainability? Yeah, that's a great question. We, we conducted the survey to just understand how important sustainability is and, and whether companies are actually implementing uh, sustainability metrics and processes into their business decision making. And surprisingly, we found that they are already doing that. And an overwhelming uh, percentage of respondents said that they are doing that. However, uh, many companies are still struggling to, to put in place the, the right metrics and right processes to get them there. And so therefore, as I just talked about, I think it's really imperative that we look at, businesses look at, uh, at the same time of looking at financial returns, those everyday little things that we do in our everyday practices of our businesses to really move towards uh, having less uh, footprint and, uh, to the environment. You've said that in order to achieve both on financial performance goals, but also deliver on the climate pledges made in Paris Agreement, you need to constantly be rethinking the traditional business models. So talk to us about what the future of SK looks like, keeping that in mind. Sure. Um, 
as I mentioned, you know, much of our uh, businesses that we started with are, you know, we're looking to transform ourselves from those businesses to much more eco-friendly businesses. And so uh, the first thing uh, we're uh, really looking to do is you know, earn the money from today's business and invest in businesses that will be much more eco-friendly. And so, uh, for example, although we power uh, a Korean economy with all of our energy solutions, uh, some hydrocarbon based, we would take those earnings and reinvest it, not just into those businesses, but into businesses like electric vehicle battery business, uh, clean hydrogen uh, business, things that we have not done before, and so we're transforming it. Secondly, also, uh, as we do with uh, in other parts of the world, in the U.S., we're uh, investing in new technologies and new industries that we think are essential to making uh, our world a much better place to uh, do business in and live in. And so, therefore, uh, Many of the uh, venture-backed companies, uh, for example, in Silicon Valley, that are doing very novel things in things like sustainable food and sustainable agriculture and other new innovative uh, industries and sectors, we're investing our earnings into those companies and helping that ecosystem thrive and, and help them prove out their technologies and make those technologies real so that we can have sustainable future. Yeah, talk to us a little bit about those kind of novel products that you're talking about. I know you're heavily investing now in sustainable food. And, and so what does the future look like you know, on the alternative food or some of the other kind of new innovations in eco products? Sure. Um, sustainable, let's stay with sustainable food for a second. Um, you know, we all know uh, that agriculture is really energy intensive um, industry and lots of carbon emissions, uh, water related issues, uh, other uh, negative footprints uh, in terms of pesticides and uh, uh, antibiotics used and so on. In the sustainable food sector, I'm sure uh, some of you uh, have seen it. Uh, where we're investing in companies like uh, wild type, which is uh, growing, essentially culturing uh, fish like salmon and, and uh, making sure that we in the future will have these uh, lab or not lab, but culture uh, grown real salmon protein for consumers to consume without all the, the, the negative uh, side effects and negative uh, pesticides or antibiotics and things like that, and also the negative effects of aqua farming. And so uh, that area is ripe for innovation and ripe for um, uh, some revolutionary um, products. And we want to be enablers, not just financially, but as, as commercial partners to make those technologies become real. You had said um, recently that you're talking about 3D printing for sustainable food. Yeah, so um, right now, many of the new technologies are at pilot scale, and they're utilizing things like 3D printing technologies to uh, produce the quality and texture of meats and, and fish and other products that consumers will adopt because they won't see the difference between what has grown and cultured uh, versus what is caught in the ocean through farming. 
So you won't really be able to tell the difference. Absolutely. And if you try like wild types, uh, I'm not a spokesperson for wild type, although we've <laughs> invested in the company. If you try their, their salmon as, as uh, sushi, uh, you couldn't tell the difference between uh, cultured salmon versus uh, aquafarm salmon. So it isn't a green effort. It's more of a business plan and investing in these next generation clean energy technologies and and products, as you said, can enhance sustainable growth and value for all stakeholders. Richard Chin, CEO of SK Opportunities, Growth Opportunities, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Elise. Thanks for the opportunity. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Good morning. I'm Frances D. Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. And um, I'm very excited now to be introducing three company founders to inspire us. First of all, Wawa Githuru, who is the founder of Black Girl Activist, and then Sophia Kiani, who's the founder and executive director of Climate Cardinals. And then Miranda Wang at the end is CEO and co-founder of Novaloop. So a very warm welcome to all three of you. Thank you for joining us. So truly, I mean, this is so inspiring to see all three of you here. And Miranda, I'd love to start with you and ask you a little about Novaloop and the founding story there. Novaloop is a, actually an advanced circularity company. So we are based in Midland Park, California, um, venture-backed startup, and we're working on transforming plastics that are really hard to recycle today by existing uh, means. Um, and we invented a chemical process to actually take the plastics, break them down a molecular level, and create brand new high-performing materials from it. Um, Including a shoe, is that right? No. That's right, yes. And so, so, Are you wearing one? I'm not wearing them right now. Um, I'm okay. not wearing them right now. There are eight pairs that were made in the world. Um, okay. And so in collaboration with On Running, uh, we actually created a, a cloud, the Cloud Prime together. Um, and that was debuted last week on September 15th. Um, and it was a really interesting consortium project. So Novaloop actually contributed the outsole, which is the bottom of the shoe. Um, and it was created through our chemical upcycling technology. Um, but the upper and the midsole of the shoe were actually created through carbon capture. So just before I move on to the next person, I want to ask you about this business of upcycling as opposed to stopping plastics at source. Do you, where, where is the issue here? Should we be looking at the product at the very beginning, or is up, upcycling an answer to our climate problems with plastic? We absolutely need to do both. Um, so there, uh, you know, there's actually been a really great study performed by Google looking at what it takes to close what they call the circularity gap, uh, which is the difference between how much plastic is projected to be produced, as well as how much we can actually recycle with our existing means. And the gap is huge. Um, there's a variety of activities that have to happen in a concerted fashion, including reduction, consumption, and new technologies to circularize plastics. Thank you. So, Sophia, Climate Cardinals, a very different approach. Again, if you can tell me a little bit about the inspiration behind it and what it's doing. Yeah, of course. Uh, so growing up, I'm Iranian-American. I would visit Iran during the summers, and I realized that my relatives didn't know anything about climate change, partially because there was a lack of resources available in Farsi, which is Iran's native language. And so I worked with my mom, who's sitting here, uh, to, translate <laughs> to translate climate resources into Farsi so I could teach my relatives about climate change. And when I was in my senior year of high school, I decided to start Climate Cardinals, which is 
is an international youth-led nonprofit working to make climate education more accessible to people who don't speak English, people like my relatives. And so now we've grown to over 9,000 student volunteers in 41 countries, and we've been able to translate over half a million words of climate resources into over 100 languages. So tell me a little bit more about the problem with the overrepresentation of English or the fact that so much of this um, is communicated primarily in English. Yeah, so when you look at the research, around 80% of scientific literature is only available in English, but then 75% of the world doesn't speak English. So tell me again, 75% is in English and 75% of the world does not speak English. 80% is in 80%. English and wow. then 75% of the world doesn't okay. speak English. And then even the UN's IPCC report, which is widely regarded as the most renowned piece of climate literature in the world, it's only officially available in the six UN languages that account for less than half of the world's speaking population. And so the UN, with all the climate documents and resources they're putting out, is leaving half of the world behind in their advocacy. Wow. So there's a really good example of inequities in terms of communications. And you, Wawa, look at another form of inequities and you bring, can you help me connect the dots with race and yeah. why that's such a key issue as we combat climate change? Yeah. So um, I am the founder of Black Girl Environmentalist, and it really is a love project. Um, I've been in the environmental space um, since I was 15 years old. And, um, so what took you there? What, <laughs> 15 and you yeah. jump into the environment? So what's really interesting is I, I had a lot of the experiences that a lot of my peers in the environmental space had of feeling very close to the earth, but wanting to protect the earth, feeling close to the identity of an environmentalist, but I very adamantly didn't see myself as an environmentalist. My idea of environmentalism felt as though it was in this high tower of whiteness and you have to be extremely wealthy and do certain activities like hiking and camping. And my family didn't do that. My family didn't look like any of the environmentalists I saw on TV, people talking about climate change. So I just thought, I guess it's not for me. Um, it wasn't until I was 16, I stumbled into an environmental science class and my teacher decided to add an environmental justice chapter. And there I began to connect the dots between race and social justice and why all these different social justice issues are environmental issues as well, since mm -hmm. the people that are experiencing the climate crisis first and worst are people of color um, and are women. And when you bring that intersection together, you find black non-men, which is a demographic in the climate space that is not only underrepresented, but isn't allowed at the same decision-making table as others, which is what I really want to help change. So take that for me onto the international level and tell me what you think the responsibility is of developed nations to help combat CO2 emissions and educate people around the world. Accountability, absolutely. I mean, what we're seeing, for instance, I mean, climate reparations is one. That's a new legal framework that a lot of people are talking about. And I think it's something that needs to be taken seriously. I mean, we look at countries like the United States, like the United Kingdom, that have really, in a lot of ways, um, disproportionately contributed to the crisis that we find ourselves in. Yet when we look at the countries that are even right now, Pakistan is underwater and people aren't talking about it in the way that they need to, there is a discrepancy there. Pakistan doesn't emit the same amount of greenhouse gases as a country like the United States, yet it's Pakistan that's underwater right now. So talking of accountability, Sophia, what is our generation, the generation of many people in this room, owe your generation in terms of repairing the damage that's been done to the world? 
I would say a seat at the table is what is owed in the sense that I truly believe in the power of intergenerational collaboration. And so I, for the last two years, have had the privilege of serving on the UN Secretary General's Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change. So I've been able to work closely with him and his team uh, to talk about climate solutions and to talk about the demands of the youth climate movement. And I think that similar models need to be implemented at all levels of our government, at all different institutions and organizations because young people, we know that our, our generation is going to be disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis if action isn't taken. And so I think it is your generation's responsibility to sit down and to work with us and to think about how we can co-design a better future. And do you think that message is being picked up? Do you feel you're being listened to and new approaches are being taken on by older generations because of your own activism? I do think that we're being listened to, but I do think that listening isn't enough. I think we need to now take that next step into action and into co-designing with young people so that we can actually implement the climate policies and the different solutions that we're actually designing. And I mean, at Stanford, we have the Stanford Climate Ventures Program, and it's been incredible to watch my peers build climate tech companies. And I also think there's an incredible opportunity for public-private sector partnerships as well. So Miranda, we've just heard from Grand, Ryan Gallat at Patagonia with this incredible contribution, but talk to me about corporate responsibility going ahead and whether you think big companies and small companies can and should be uh, committing to climate in a way that goes beyond their own concerns with profitability. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think on the issue of sustainability here, um, it, it really is a team sport, right? It's something that can only happen if you look at our supply chains. Um, we, we have to, from a very beginning, the raw material stages through all the way to the end products, um, work toward adopting, developing, adopting these better materials, better ways of manufacturing, ways to turn our waste into resources. Um, that's just one example of things that require just an entire you know, concerted effort across the entire supply chain, right? Tens to hundreds of companies, for example, just to get to one end product. Um, and so, <clears throat> um, you know, I think on this front, it's, it's more about how are companies looking at their role in this? Are you in a position where you're actively able to develop the technologies and implement them? Um, and if you are, then you should do that. Um, but if you're in a position where you can't really do that, you know, you're, you're more at the place where you're selecting maybe the technologies or things to purchase. Um, and I think um, that's the part where a lot of the things, for example, that my fellow panelists are doing, you know, is bring to the forefront the attention of how much society is demanding these things. Mm. Um, and, and this is what is holding companies accountable and is very important. So I'd love it if you just each talked to me briefly about the personal commitments you, you make within running your own companies of whatever size to make sure that they are accountable to the climate. Maybe. Can you repeat that question? Yeah, about the, the, the personal commitments you make within your own groups about running your lives and your companies in a way that's climate friendly. That's, that's a great question. I, you know, I think something that we're missing from the climate space is world building. Um, right, like that, that space that science fiction gets so right, where you can just take the time and imagine the world that you're working towards. And I think with climate, everything is so 
urgent, we don't always take the time to do that. So, so, so something that I really think is important within the organization and for our members is to take the time before and after meetings to think about what are we working towards? What world are we building? What world do we want to be a part of? And what world do we want to leave behind? And be very specific about what that looks like. Interesting. Sophia, do you have anything to add? I love the science fiction reference. I think for me, the biggest thing that I've really focused on is making sure that when we think about accountability, we think about the fact that thinking of it through the lens of individual action is actually a very flawed perception. And I think that too often young people feel like we need to think about like our carbon footprint and we need to think about all the ways that we need to act and think more sustainably. And I mean, I, I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post about how I live more sustainably as a student, but I prefaced it by saying that the notion of the carbon footprint was designed by uh, fossil fuel companies and really peddled as a marketing scheme to make us think that we're responsible for the climate crisis when it really is the companies that need to be held responsible. And I think for me, being able to educate the thousands of young people that I work with to realize that we need to be holding polluters accountable. And part of the biggest way we can do that is by getting involved in political processes and being advocates going and voting and then also getting out the vote so that we look at it through a more systemic lens. That's fascinating. Miranda, what to add on that? Yeah, I think I spend most of my time um, <clears throat> considering what really is good technology, right? Um, so when we're working every day in the lab developing, you know, a very technical, complicated scientific technology, um, it's really, I think, really important to implement measures like LCAs, life cycle assessments, for example, um, at early stages so that you understand, you know, for example, our process, yes, we're using plastic waste as an input, but how good is the process in general from cradle, cradle to gate? And those studies, <clears throat> doing it in an early enough stage actually helps to elucidate what are, the, what are the points that we could make changes in our process development such that when the technology is industrialized and scaled up, it has the absolute best impacts possible. Um, and also, I think another perspective looking at a lot of ways things are manufactured is that, you know, a lot of processes are chemical, right? You're, you're emitting some sort of carbon emissions, for example. Um, now there are, you know, increasing ways to actually take that. Instead of letting that release off into the atmosphere, can we take that and make goods with it? Can we use that and then trap that into, you know, some physical form? Um, and, and that's a really interesting topic that I think think um, uh, people in my space, you know, in climate tech is looking very deeply at and, and is a good thing. So while we're, when we were outside before coming on, we were talking about how interconnected and powerful the youth climate movement is. And I know a number of you have met each other, but um, how optimistic does that make you about transformational change going ahead? It makes me so optimistic. I think where I gain a lot of my optimism and even just energy to remain in this space um, because honestly there are so many different avenues that I could have gone and you know at 16 I realized the climate crisis was the biggest crisis that was facing humanity and it's really my climate comrades that keep me going hearing their stories um, hearing the ways that they got into climate the innovative ways that they're addressing unique climate communications to climate tech to climate strategy, it's so inspiring. And I think a lot of people should turn their eyes to the youth climate movement because there's a lot of amazing innovation happening there. So, Sophia, what's the one piece of advice you'd give to the older generation? I think I would say <laughs> that Maybe you've got your audience. <laughs> I would say use your creativity. 
part of the thing that really inspired me about Climate Cardinals is that we honestly are a ragtag group of teenagers that were able to congregate through the power of social media. With a $0 marketing budget, we launched on our first day and went viral on TikTok and reached hundreds of thousands of people and were able to get over a thousand people to sign up to volunteer with us. And I think that now when you think of the fact that this is a group of teenagers that spans over 40 countries, the average age of one of our volunteers is just 16 years old. And we did this just purely through the power of imagination and creativity. And I think that's something that's often lacking in the climate crisis when we look at it through such a black and white lens where you also leave behind the justice perspective, but then you also leave behind the notion of, hey, maybe we can get on TikTok and actually mobilize people to go out into the streets and take action and to join efforts like Climate Cardinals. So just follow up on that. How inspired are you by the global reach? I mean, we're so uh, caught up in a world that's bound by national boundaries, and then uh, you're talking about, you know, global reach educationally, but... I mean, it's amazing to me that I can wake up and talk to a volunteer in Bangladesh and then talk to another volunteer in Iran and to see that all these young people want to do is that they realize that the climate crisis is the biggest issue of our time. And they're spending their free time, their free resources organizing so that they can make an impact, even in the smallest way, even if it's translating one document and sharing that with their relatives the way that I did. The fact that that's their first step into this movement makes me so inspired because I know that our future leaders are already so activated and so involved. And all it took was one TikTok to inspire them. And so imagine how much more we can all accomplish if the older generation is supportive and really make sure that young people have the resources and the aptitude to get involved in more initiatives. Thank you. And our last question for you, Miranda. Um, technology, I mean, it's so key, obviously, and important going ahead. How optimistic are you that the technological changes are going to overcome the problems that uh, we're facing now? I think the biggest impacts um, on climate course correction, if you will, is going to come from technology. But technology doesn't get developed in a vacuum, right? It's, it's developed based on um, how, a reflection of how people in society think. Um, and I think if you look at climate tech and how it's accelerated, I mean, this is an industry that's growing at the scale of the Industrial Revolution, but at the speed of the digital revolution, right? Um, how it has changed over the past two years in terms of the amount of investment dollars going in, the amount of uh, numbers of companies being created, that is an active reflection, I think, of a generation change. Um, climate is very much the, the most important topic today. Um, and it will remain to be the most important topic. Um, I, I mean, as we see, everything that's going on is ex being exacerbated, and these problems are not going to course correct themselves. Um, and so I think when we go to technology and look at what you know, keeps me optimistic and why we found a Nova Loop, um, the really deep intent is to show the possibilities that can come out of using carbons trapped in plastic waste. What are all the ways we can tap into that as a resource and make products that are relevant for the world? Um, and, and that's what I see a lot of my you know, fellow entrepreneurs um, in the Bay Area and beyond uh, working on every day, and, and it's extremely energizing. Well, thank you. Thank you, Wawa, Sophia, and Miranda for tackling the most important topic of the day in the most inspiring way possible. Thank you for joining the Washington Post today.
everybody who joined us here and to our audience online um, in our live event space. You can always go to Washington Post Live to see our upcoming events and tune in online or join future events here. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Francis Steed Sellers. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.